Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters, who have been brought on eagles' wings into the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This is our second week looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began last week with what we call the Beatitudes. He taught that people who, in the eyes of the world, do not seem to be favored. He mentioned meek people and people who mourn, poor in spirit people, people who are persecuted. Jesus said that in his kingdom, these people are favored. They're blessed by God. That God will bring blessing to them despite the circumstances of their lives. Jesus taught us with those words last week that status works differently in his kingdom. We're framing our consideration of the Sermon on the Mount through this idea of culture shock. Right? Because the Bible uses the metaphor of entering an, a new kingdom, a new nation, a new country to describe what it is to follow Jesus. When we think about that metaphor, we should realize we can learn at least three things. One, we're not alone when we become Jesus followers. In any kingdom, there are other people. There can't be a kingdom of one. Other people walk with us. Comforting thing we learn from this metaphor of, of entering a new kingdom. Two, we learn from this metaphor that there's a leader. Every kingdom or nation has some form of leadership. Jesus leads his kingdom. And he does so through his word. Last thing we learn from this metaphor. When the Bible tells us that following Jesus is entering a new kingdom, we ought to expect a bit of cultural adjustment. Because moving, whether it's to a new town, a new state, a new country, always entails some culture shock. What will my new neighbors be like in the next town over? What will people call this or that thing in this other state? How will people live in this other country? Last week when we heard that Jesus' kingdom handles status differently than the world does, there was some culture shock there, but although we were maybe surprised to hear who it is exactly who's honored has status in Jesus' kingdom, right? We're prepared to understand that status works differently in different ways. We, we know that. In some cultures, age can bring social cachet and importance. In other cultures, economic power determines status. So hearing that status works differently in Jesus' kingdom wasn't that surprising last week, was it? But what we're going to hear as we think about today's reading should surprise us. When you come into Jesus' kingdom, when you become his follower, you at that moment become a cultural ambassador for his kingdom. Think about what Jesus says in verse 14. You are the light of the world. This is his first time teaching his disciples. Up until this point, he's been traveling, he's been preaching, he's, he's been inviting people to become his followers. Now, as soon as he has found some followers, people willing to sit on this mountaintop and listen to him, he tells them, you are the light of the world. You new citizens represent my kingdom to everyone who sees you. This is not how culture works outside of Jesus' kingdom. If you would move to Brazil, no particular reason to pick Brazil, just kind of an example, you would be viewed by people there as a representative of American culture. If they didn't know another American, their understanding of our nation and its culture would be derived from your example. You would obviously, though, not be regarded as a representative for Brazil's culture. That would be ridiculous. Now, maybe if you lived there a while, you assimilated culturally, you became a citizen or something like that, you could claim to represent Brazil's culture to a certain extent to the outside world. 
But that would be a process. Right? You would not represent Brazil's culture after living there a few months. But Jesus says to his brand new disciples, you represent my kingdom. You are the light of the world. Whether you've been in this kingdom for 60 years or six weeks, you represent it to those outside. Jesus explains this with two metaphors, right? He talks about a town on a hill. He talks about a lamp set out on a stand. Both of those are depicted on the front of your service folder. A town on a hill cannot be hidden, he says. A hill in those days, it was a good place to build your town, and it's still a good place, in fact. Right? A, a, a town isn't going to flood if it's up on a hill. Back then, a hill also provided a natural defense against attack. But the fact is, there's no easy way to hide such a town. If you want to hide your town, build it elsewhere, down in a valley, next to a cliff, right? If you want the benefits of a hilltop, you build there. And you recognize that it can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Light was precious in those days, right? More than we can really understand in our flip-a-switch kind of world. You had to have some kind of flammable fuel. Then you had to produce another flame somehow. And then you would begin consuming your fuel, which for most of history was, was prohibitively expensive. Right? Once you've lit the lamp, you're not going to waste your effort and your resources by covering it up. That would be foolish. That's Jesus' point. His people, the people of his kingdom, give off light. They give off light corporately as a group, like a town on a hill in the dark night. They give off light individually, personally, like a lamp in a house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine, Jesus says. Think about what he's asserting. You have light. You are a light source. And if you are a light source, your purpose is to give light to those who need it. And people actually do expect that. People criticize Christians when our deeds, our words, our attitudes fail to measure up to what we profess. We're held to a higher standard by many people. Is that unfair? No. Jesus calls us to be light shining in this world. John Chrysostom, one of the greatest preachers of the early Christian church, said on these verses, Christians must be careful of all their walk and conversation, seeing that we are set in the eyes of all, like a city on a hill or a lamp on a stand. And so Jesus goes on, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law. Small word, big concept. When the Bible talks about the law, it's talking about what God wills for humans to do with their lives. Jesus sums up the law simply in Matthew chapter 22. An expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The words of Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the law's command for your life, for every life. It's what Jesus said human life is meant to be. That's what letting your light shine is. Love God, love your neighbor. But how do we carry that out? Right? How do we love God and love our neighbor? God answers that question for us in the Bible. 
Next week, we'll hear Jesus clearly and explicitly teach us how to live his light with particular instruction and particular direction. In Peter's letter, which we heard this morning, we heard some of that as well, front-loaded before we get into Jesus' explicit teaching on that next week. Before getting to that point, though, Jesus wants his people to understand something clearly. Living as his people is not optional for his people. Verse 18, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I'm going to have a step away from the Sermon on the Mount for a moment and look at another piece of scripture I just mentioned. It's our second reading. This reading, again, came from a letter written by Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, a man who was sitting at Jesus' feet on that mountain that day listening to these words when they were spoken for the first time. And in his letter here, Peter explains what it was that Jesus taught him and taught the crowd that day. Living as God's people again is not optional for God's people. So first Peter explains how we became God's people. Verse 10 of that reading, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus talked about mercy in the section of the Sermon on the Mount we heard last week. Right? Mercy is this attitude that withholds punishment when one has the right to punish. God's mercy made us his people, Peter says. We did not deserve this status. It is not something we earned. Right? Again, if we think about Jesus' kingdom as a nation into which we have entered, how did we get here? It was not on the kind of best and brightest visa, right? As highly skilled workers who are bringing something of value into his kingdom. We are refugees. Right? We entered this kingdom not because of our worthiness, but because of the compassion of its rescuer king. We have received mercy, Peter says. Let me tie in the first of our three readings this morning. Uh, it's a selection from the Exodus story. The Israelites, the nation whom God had decided to use as the people through whom he would send Jesus, the Israelites had been slaves in the land of Egypt for centuries at this point, and God rescued them. He describes his rescue in verse 4 of that reading. You yourselves, he says to the Israelites, have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then he calls on them to live as his people because he has made them his people by rescuing them. How do they reply? We will do everything the Lord says. How could they have said anything else? How can we say anything else when we consider God's love for us? That Peter echoes these words of God to Israel in his letter when he says, You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession. He called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What grace! And that grace, God's gift-giving love, has made us who we are, his people, citizens of Jesus' kingdom. We could not have entered Jesus' kingdom any other way. Jesus says that in the last verse of our Matthew reading. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the most upstanding citizens of Jesus' day. They were faithful church attenders. They tithed everything as an offering to God, down to the spices from their cupboards. They brought a tenth of that to the temple to offer. They scrupulously adhered to the law. 
And so elsewhere, when Jesus speaks directly to them, he condemns them for their self-righteousness. Right? They believe that their strict, traditionalist ways made them more pleasing in God's eyes. And when Jesus spoke with them, he shredded those self-righteous presumptions. But here, as he speaks to his disciples, he acknowledges that the Pharisees and the law teachers were good, upstanding citizens. But they were not good enough. So Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to enter my kingdom on your own merits, you need to be even better than the Pharisees. More obedient to the law, more zealous in attending worship, more strict about tithing, more sexually pure, more outraged by sin, more, more, more! Trying to get into heaven that way is a dead end. You need a greater righteousness than you could ever achieve. So in Jesus, God gifts you that greater righteousness. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He said he came to fulfill them. Every word of law spoken before his coming served to show us our need for a savior, to show us that we could not enter heaven on our own. These words allowed us to see our savior when he came. The law and the prophets testified that this sinless man, God's son, was their fulfillment. Jesus' life fulfilled God's law and the righteousness of his perfect life is gifted to you through faith. But, Peter says, God's righteousness gifting mercy is not an excuse for sin. Instead, he says, verse 15, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. There's a tension here. And we're talking about being justified by God's mercy because of his grace outside of what we have earned or deserved. Yet we're also talking about the necessity of our living as God's light-bearing people. Peter says we are free people who must live as God's slaves. There's tension there. But it's easy to express. We are God's people. Let us live as God's people, as ambassadors of his kingdom. Next week, we'll read Jesus' words explaining what that looks like. For now, we'll say, Amen.